We are in the midst of a series, four weeks, one week down, three to go. Series we're calling Beginning with Moses, the Divine Structure of the Bible. Perhaps you've heard the expression, you can't see the forest for the trees. Meaning, when you're surrounded by a grove of trees, you may not be able to realize how vast the whole forest is. The trees stand in your way of seeing the bigger picture. Well, we don't want to miss the forest, the grand structure and story of the Bible for the trees, the smaller stories, the individual books or paragraphs that we read on a daily basis. We want to see the forest and then be able to drop down in the midst of any trees and and know where we are in the story of the Bible. We began our overview in the books of the law, and we used the outline of content, issue, and function. We'll do that in these coming weeks. The content was laws that we can't keep and sacrifices that can't cleanse. The issue is holiness, that God is holy and man is sinful. And this creates a problem, a crisis. How can sinful man be made right with holy God? How do we ever get back to Eden, to fellowship with God, when sin and God's holiness cannot meet? The function of these books of the law was to create in us a longing for a perfect priest with a perfect sacrifice. Today, we expand, we press on in our study of the structure of Scripture into the books of history and the books of poetry. In our English Bibles, the books of history begin with the book of Joshua and end with the book of Esther. They're not purely in chronological order. Some of the books carry the chronological timeline, and other books would kind of plug in and fill in some other details. But generally, as you work your way through the Bible, when you hit the book of Joshua, you're beginning now the books of history, or what the Old Testament saints, including Jesus in his day, would call the Law and the Prophets, We're now into that prophet section where those prophets prophesied during this reign of the various kings, the history of Israel. What makes up the content of these books of history? What's a helpful way of summarizing what we find there? Again, there there are other ways to do this, but I remind you, I'm, I'm using the stark outline from a freshman Bible class from 30 years ago, Dr. Mark Minnick gave this lecture, uh, and from what I can remember, uh, I gave you about 10 years ago in a Sunday school class, and now we all hear it. So again, this is not original content in this stark outline, but I do find it incredibly helpful in understanding how all of the Bible is telling the story of Jesus. So the content of the books of history Well, the book of Joshua begins with this new generation of Israelites ready to cross the Jordan River 
enter the promised land after a 40-year delay due to their parents' unbelief. They died in the wilderness, the unbelieving generation, and now this new generation is ready, and they miraculously cross the Jordan River, and we move into the promised land. We enter the historical books with a high level of hope. And I suggest to you that hope is the first element of the content of the books of history. We are often going to have our hopes lifted when we see some of the bright spots in these books of history. There's great optimism from the start, great potential for this next generation to actually inherit the promised land, not only after 40 years of wilderness wandering, but after hundreds of years of the family of Jacob being slaves in Egypt. They now have God's covenant promise right in their hands. They're no longer just a family of Jacob. They've expanded into what God has now called a nation. It's as if this empire was birthed out of slavery in Egypt and has now progressed to the promised land and they're ready to set up shop. Blessings await. A fresh start in a land of their own. As Deuteronomy would tell us, they are going to inhabit cities that they didn't build live in homes that they didn't build, reap from vineyards and fields that they didn't plant. They're going to eat animals and drink the milk of cows that they didn't raise. This is the dawning of hope for these people. After waking up in the desert again and again and again, knowing that the sentence of God was to wander until those 40 years were complete, they will now wake up and think only one thought, Conquest, victory, inheritance, the promise of God, hope. But the hope in these books of history is all too soon tempered with disappointment. Disappointment. There is plenty of failure, fear, and missed opportunity to equal all the optimism and hope that we were feeling in Joshua chapter 1. This cloud of disappointment was foreshadowed right on the doorstep of these books of history there in Kadesh Barnea. When they're about to cross the river and claim the land, and all they need to do is send in the 12 spies to map out the exact kind of plan, the approach. And 10 spies sway the masses with what is called an evil report, a report that would tend to doubt the promise of God. And it overcame the report of the two spies, Joshua and Caleb, who said, do not be afraid. Let's trust what God has said and take the promised land. Yet they failed. And now as they enter the promised land, even though it's a new generation riding that wave of hope, crossing the Jordan on dry ground as the water stood up in a heap, entering in, setting up a memorial stone, a revival in the midst of the people, a renewal of the covenant, and they enter the land. 
and essentially begin the roller coaster of hope on the upside and disappointment on the downside. They would cross the Jordan and defeat that mighty fortress of Jericho. Hope abounds. The momentum builds. And yet in the very next step of the conquest, a surprising loss at Ai and disappointment kills the momentum. The failure to obey God's command leads to Disappointment, hope deflated. And Joshua, on the heels of Ai's loss, is in confusion. Lord, what are you doing? The sin of Achan is pointed out, dealt with, but the people have already learned that this journey will be one of hope and disappointment. When we see all the ups and downs of hope and disappointment, a key issue comes into focus. The issue of these books of history is an issue of leadership. Who would lead the people of God to victory, to righteous living, to success, in their case, in the land of promise? Who would champion the cause of righteousness and covenant faithfulness? Who would ensure that God's people would stay in the place of God's blessing? Surely it will be Moses. He's this great redeemer. He's called by God to go into Egypt, stand before Pharaoh, and literally rest God's people from the hands of Egypt and take them to the promised land. He's a great prophet, great king figure, great priest figure. Surely this is the leader who would lead God's people to the promised land, who would ensure that God's people stayed in the place of blessing. And yet, even the ministry of Moses would be marked by great disappointment. Moses himself would not enter the promised land. In that moment of frustration and anger, he strikes the rock when God had said to speak to the rock. And this sentence, his consequence was, he would go up into the mountain and look and see that God is faithful. He would see the promised land, but he would not enter. In Moses, we feel hope of this great leader leading God's people to blessing, and then we find great disappointment to see that Moses couldn't get the job done. But Joshua, Yeshua, his name means Jehovah saves. Surely Joshua will be the one. And it looks as though he is. Moses, my servant, is dead. The book of Joshua begins with, Now you, Joshua, arise and lead my people into the promised land. The book of Joshua unfolds a story of conquest, victory, blessing, division of the inheritance so that all the tribes settle in their places, 
take on those cities that they didn't build, live in those farms that they didn't plant. We read in Joshua chapter 24, in verse 13, God says, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwelt in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Joshua gives this challenge to the people that we know well. It's for me and my house. We will serve the Lord. Issues that challenge to them all. And in verse 28, Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Feels hopeful. Stirring words of challenge, a lot of victory, a lot of success, a lot of blessing. We're on the upside. And then we turn the page, literally. And we read in Judges chapter 1, But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Other tribes, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Verse 30, Zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants. 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, did not drive them out. Naphtali, verse 33, did not drive out the inhabitants. And at the end of that verse, they said, we read that they forced them into labor for them as a secondary kind of plan. Verse 34, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. Wait a minute. Joshua was, was all about conquest and taking the land. We were, we were excited about them spreading out in the land and receiving their inheritance. Now just drive out those that remain and make it yours. But we're reading they were pushed back into the hill country. For they did not allow them to come down into the plain. Suddenly God's people were starting to get that bitter acid reflux of what it's like to not be in charge. They're driven up into the hill country and they weren't allowed to come down into the plain. By who? This was the land God had given to to them. Why were they hiding away from their inheritance? This failure to drive out all the enemies and their idols becomes not just a thorn in the flesh, Not just an Achilles heel, but a a fatal flaw that destroys the optimism, the hope that we had at thinking Joshua, whose name is the Lord saves, would be the one to get these people to a place of blessing. Well, the judges unfold. Because like the tribes of Dan, all the tribes are overrun by their enemies. And now the people of Israel are essentially back to their slavery. You know the story of Judges, that God's people are overrun by some other nation. 
They cry out to the Lord in repentance. God in his mercy sends a deliverer, a judge, a rescuer, a redeemer figure. And that judge would deliver God's people and they would settle into a few decades of blessing. A generation or two would go by where they kind of basked in the kindness of God to deliver them. And then they would grow apathetic and cold and begin to compromise and would yield to idolatry. And because of that idolatry, God would judge them and they would be overrun by their enemies and the cycle would begin again. Twelve judges spanning hundreds of years of a merry-go-round of hope, hope, disappointment, failure, But wait, hope, another deliverance, failure and idolatry. Hope, Gideon, failure, idolatry. Hope, Samson, failure. And round and round we go in the cycle of the Old Testament books of history that are demonstrating to us that this issue of leadership really matters. God's people need the right leader. After the judges, really during the period of the judges, we have this bright spot, the faith of a Gentile woman, Ruth, and a strong man who understands the the way of the culture and understands God's law even, Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. And in that short little story, we, we kind of get a refreshing sense that comes out of that disappointing ending in the book of Judges, the last verse Every man does right in his own eyes. Then you read Ruth and you're like, okay, let's hope again. Let's hope again that there can be leadership and righteousness that prevails. And that hope carries over into the story of Eli. The last of the kind of judges, he and Samuel, but also more specifically in that role of prophet, the first of those prophets. And things look good. God is speaking through the prophet, his word. Surely a prophet who hears from God himself will be able to keep God's people on the right path. Eli, a good prophet who seems to stir our hope and optimism. But then as we read of his life, we realize that while his ministry may have been good, as he's about to pass the torch to his sons, we realize that they are not. And in 1 Samuel chapter 3, we read, Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Eli was a good prophet. He carried that hope for us that, okay, someone who hears from God is surely a leader that will be counted on. But we realize that he too was flawed. He didn't manage his house well or even 
the temple dealings well, and his sons were blasphemers, and God would destroy this family line of ministry. But in the midst of that story, we're told of another story, the story of a woman who is barren and prays for a child, and God answers her prayer. And she gives birth to Samuel and gives him to the Lord. And he's raised there at the temple, and he becomes that next prophet judge. And he's good. He's good. Our hope is renewed when we read that Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and none of his words fell to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. Good. We're back on track. Someone that everyone recognizes is the answer to our problem. A man of God, Samuel. He'll get the job done. He'll champion righteousness. He'll make sure God's people do what's right and never lose that blessing. But a few chapters later, we read of Samuel's family. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. We're told their names, and then we read, Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. They came to Samuel and they said, we're, we're tired of this up and down journey of failed leadership. We think the answer must be what all the other nations have, a king. Because kings surely can lead their people well. So the search begins, and Saul is anointed king. And in 1 Samuel 15, actually in a lecture from the prophet, Saul is reminded that in his early days, he had the heart of a godly leader. And the prophet says, Though you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. Saul was humble in his beginning days. He stood head and shoulders, the text tells us, literally above everyone else. A giant of a man. He commanded with his presence authority. Surely that guy can be the kind of leader that we need. And yet in the same words from the prophet where he was commended for his humility of heart in his early days of ministry, now... The prophet is saying of King Saul, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination or witchcraft, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Hope and yet another disappointment. But a few chapters before when Saul had misstepped, his 
faith had faltered. The prophet had spoken to him about that failure. And in so doing, he predicted a day when another king would take Saul's place. And in 1 Samuel 13 and verse 14, the prophet said this, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and commanded him to be prince. Acts chapter 13 recounts that same reference to David as the shepherd boy being sought out, anointed as king, as a man after God's own heart. Now, despite the fact that we have been burned multiple times already in our understanding of leaders that we thought would be the answer for God's people, we're essentially still waiting for the fulfillment of the promised land, everyone's doing what's right and loving God. Where's the leader that can lead us into that kind of life? And though we've been burned, now we're being told that the leader that has been selected, not like Moses, not like Joshua, not like the 12 judges, not like those judge prophets, not like the king you just had, but this king is a man after God's own heart. That's reason for hope except that you all know better. Because this king, after God's own heart, falls into adultery, arranges a murder, and because of those actions and following actions, has a family tree that is left in complete disarray. No, no happy family reunions with these dozens of children and scores of grandchildren and what a godly heritage. Rather, a dismal failure. The man after God's own heart that we dared to hope in has again shown us that this path of hope in human leaders is actually a path to disappointment. It just depends which side of the road you're looking on. You're going down this road and you're thinking, there's King David and look at all the good he's doing. But if you really look at the other side, you realize that this, this isn't going to end well to put our confidence ultimately in kings or princes. But we actually dare to hope again when we see the sheer weight of glory and wealth and wisdom in David's son, Solomon. How can, how can you not overlook past failures of leadership and think this surely must be the one? This must be the golden age of Israel. This must be what the books of the law and the history we're talking about. This, this is it. This is the height of glory. The wisest and wealthiest man there ever was, 1 Kings tells us. But then 1 Kings also tells us that he took an interest in many wives. And they turned his heart to idolatry and he took an interest in many gods. This begins a 
pattern of kings. Solomon's united kingdom would be divided. And from then on, we have Israel in the north, Judah in the south, ten tribes in the north, two in the south, multiple kings in the north, all bad, and their history is shorter lived than the southern tribes, and the Assyrians wipe them off the face of the map, and you never really hear of them again. There's some remnant of that, those tribes in what we call the Samaritans in the New Testament, but you'll never see those tribes in that, that northern kingdom again. The southern tribes, there's a few good kings. There's a few bright spots. We have a little bit of hope, and yet more disappointment. King Uzziah, another 40-year reign. The Mount Rushmore of kings with David and Solomon. Probably Uzziah and maybe Josiah. And Uzziah in his last days in pride goes in and alters incense, offers incense in the temple in his pride and God strikes him with leprosy and he dies and is buried in a leper's field. We thought that would be another great moment of hope and it, and it really ends with a sour taste in our mouths. Those years of the kings are hard years. And, and they walk us right into the Babylonian captivity as the sentence comes down from the prophets that these people have broken the covenant. They are adulterers. Their faithfulness to God has not been proven. Quite to the contrary, they have proven themselves unfaithful. And we experience 70 years of just disappointment. Just kind of stewing in the failure of God's people and the absence of a leader to get them to where they need to be. Even in the return from captivity, you can't, you can't help but see a little bit of hope. They're going back to their land. They're free. They can return. And there's the rebuilding of the walls and the rebuilding of the temple. And Nehemiah and Jeremiah, or Ezra and Nehemiah offer us a little bit of hope that there's some good leadership here. And we see a little bit of a spark of desire to obey God and God's people at the prompting of the prophets. But even under Ezra and Nehemiah and under those prophets, the people insist on going their own way and they just cannot give their attention to this religious system of their fathers. And they just kind of plunge into this dead religion of Judaism that we come to understand 400 years later when we're reading of Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees. That religion came out of that new generation that had a moment of hope in the return from Babylon, but it quickly gave way to the disappointment of a heartless religion. Up and down, good then bad, hope then disappointment. How does this historical record serve us? as we read it. It helps us understand the function of the books of history. Amidst all the other lessons we can learn there, we must not miss this lesson, that the books of history have a purpose. We're supposed to want Moses to go to the promised land and be disappointed when he sins and does not. We're supposed to think Joshua surely left the table set perfectly yet be disappointed when we hear that they didn't drive out all the enemies. We're supposed to think every judge will be the next answer and be disappointed when it's not. 
We're supposed to think a man after God's own heart will surely be the leader we need and be disappointed when we see him lusting after Bathsheba. We're supposed to think Solomon in all of his glory must be the answer only to see him living out vanity, all his vanity. We're supposed to think that the return from the exile and the building of the walls and the building of the temple will be the answer, only to be disappointed that their heart's not really in it. And they'll go through 400 years without a word from God and kind of be okay with it. The function of the books of history is to create a longing in us for the perfect king with a perfect kingdom. In other words, the whole Old Testament stands against Christian nationalism. That somehow if America would just get right with God, everything would be great. And it won't. It's not the answer. As Americans... We should fight for every ounce of rightness we can because we're seeing the nonsense that's going on. And we should fight and use every bit of our citizenship to make sure things change as much as it's in our power to see them change. But take all of that and subject it to this big picture that we can't set up a good enough leader in the home a husband or father. We can't set up a good enough leader in the church, a pastor or an elder. We can't set up a good enough political leader, a governor or a president or a king. We can't make a good enough society so that we can say, finally, leadership that champions righteousness without hypocrisy in their own sin and can help us to get it right so that we never lose God's blessing. Israel had this longing stirring up within them after going through lesson one, Moses, lesson two, Joshua, lesson three, Judges, all 12 of them, kings, one after another, one after another. They had learned well the lesson that our hope of a righteous kingdom cannot be found in human leaders. We need a leader who would love both justice and mercy and could do them both somehow perfectly. We need a leader who would rule with fairness and integrity so that not just his rich cronies benefit, like the kings that we read of in Kings and Chronicles, but even the poor are helped. A leader who wouldn't mess up when everyone was counting on him. David, you're the man after God's own heart. Show us what it looks like to be godly. Don't follow David. We want a leader who would fill the search that God made in Ezekiel 22 when God says, I sought for a man among them who would stand in the gap before me in the land so that I would not destroy it but I found none. No one. As we've seen, all these leaders, as good as they may have been, could not keep God's people in the place of blessing. They couldn't fill every gap. 
We need a a leader who would make his people righteous and ensure the blessing of God, a perfect king with a perfect kingdom. Now, briefly, as we consider the issue of leadership in the books of history, let's add our understanding of this perfect leader with some help from the books of poetry. This will be the shortest emphasis. Remember, these books of poetry, we often call them wisdom literature, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Primarily written, obviously, the record of Job, but then David and Solomon giving us the record of most of the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. What's the content of the wisdom literature? Well, let's break it down based on these various books. The Psalms show us the will of a perfect leader, the will to obey, the will to choose God's way. That's why it begins, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, but instead delights in God's law. He becomes like this tree planted by the river, nourished, well-fed, fruitful, not withering. God drives away the wicked, but he blesses the righteous. Blessed is the man who sees that path and chooses God's way. That's the will of the perfect leader. Proverbs gives us the wisdom of the perfect leader. With that perpetual choice set before us in Proverbs of folly or wisdom, the right leaders choose wisdom. The perfect leader always chooses wisdom. We see wisdom in Solomon. Some of the tales of his wisdom unfold in the biblical account, but we also see that he didn't always choose wisdom. Ecclesiastes, we could label this as showing us the values of the perfect leader. We can see what's valuable and what's not. That theme of vanity and everything under the sun. And and it can feel kind of almost recklessly abandoning any purpose, and yet that's not the point. Ecclesiastes says this is the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. So we need a leader who can plow through all the vanity and get us to what is truly important, obeying God and keeping his commandments. Song of Solomon, the heart of the perfect leader. A banner of love over his beloved. A demonstrable love that is always faithful. The will, the wisdom, the values, and the heart of the perfect leader. And the issue of this wisdom literature is to refine for us the character of the perfect leader. To show us what leadership should look like. You've seen the ups and downs of the examples of the Old Testament. Now you're seeing what their character should really look like. They show us how truth and righteousness govern the will, govern the emotions, govern the mind, govern the actions. This is why we read in the Psalms the prayer, Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O God. You're Lord. You're the Redeemer. The perfect leader must recognize that he must be in complete submission to the character of God. The function of this wisdom literature then is to create a longing for a perfect leader. 
just like a young girl growing up would have the picture of the perfect husband, that knight in shining armor, that prince riding on a white horse, whatever the imageries are, right? They're, they're shaping in their mind, oh, wouldn't that be wonderful? It's that sweetness. It's the, it's the picture-perfect utopia. But when you read your Old Testament, you, you're not finding utopia. You're finding quite the opposite. You're, you're, you're being frustrated by glimpses of hope, and every time that hope is dashed by disappointment. And yet, you're, you're foolish enough to dare to hope again in the next one. But that's the design. That's the purpose of these Old Testament books. They are showing us that what we have in earthly leaders is insufficient. These books are telling us what to expect from the perfect leader to come. The one that God called his anointed, his Messiah, his servant. So now we have the longing for a perfect leader and we have a pretty good idea what his character, what his ministry and what his mission will look like when he comes. We're trying to read and think this through as though we don't know the rest of the story, but we do. But so far, we have the books of the law creating this longing for a perfect priest with a perfect sacrifice. We've added to that the books of history, which create a longing for a perfect king with a perfect kingdom because he has perfect character. These books of history have highlighted all the foolishness and the failure of human authority. And they're pointing us to the perfection of King Jesus and the kingdom of God. If you know the Old Testament, you know, man, it's really hard to submit to these imperfect authorities. But if you know the New Testament, why should you not willingly submit to the perfect king who has a perfect kingdom and perfect character? What is your fear in bowing to him as Lord? Jeremiah 23 predicted, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. You just went on the roller coaster with me through their history and there was no security. You were always waiting for hope to deflate into disappointment. The prophet was saying there will come a day when the righteous king rules that you will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Yahweh, Sidkenu, Jehovah is righteousness. It's his name. Is it any wonder that his king will be righteous and his kingdom will be a kingdom of perfect righteousness? It's who he is. No more roller coaster of hope and disappointment. Revelation 19 says, Then I saw heaven open to behold a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and is righteousness. 
He wages war. No more inconsistency. No more thwarted good intentions. No more settling for good enough. No more hope dashed by disappointment. The Bible says in Acts 2, Jesus is sitting on the throne of his Father, and he rules in righteousness. So two applications as we close. Number one, take heart. The Lord, our righteousness, is ruling this world. Whenever we hear that, we think, what about Ukraine? What about the cancerous spot on that doctor's test? What about the death of my friend that I heard about on Facebook or whatever? We have these things that we think demonstrate maybe God's not ruling on the throne, but he is. And he's only waiting to make his absolute rule absolutely known to all men. And that waiting is in mercy so that many will come to faith in Christ. So don't doubt his righteous rule in the affairs of the world or in the circumstances of your life this week. Remember the Old Testament was stirring up in us a longing for the perfect king with a perfect kingdom. And Jesus came and his first message Mark and Matthew record for us was the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe this good news. Many of you have said, I believe the good news, that Jesus is Savior. Believe the good news that he's Lord as well, and he rules and reigns even now. Your life is not being dictated by chaos. It's being ordained by providence. Read the article that was in the Newsletter this week. God has not given you a stone based on Jesus' words. If you ask your heavenly father for bread, will he give a stone? No. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Number two, take heart. The Lord, our righteousness, has declared you righteous. You may not have come today to worship feeling very righteous, You're thinking how you probably haven't loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind this week. You haven't turned away from every temptation. It's one of the reasons we remind ourselves with a prayer of confession and the assurance of pardon that we are not yet perfected as God intends us to be. There's more work to be done and there's more yielding for us to do but we are reminding ourselves that the Lord, our righteousness, has declared us righteous when we hide ourselves in Christ, when we believe that his righteousness is what makes us righteous. If you have turned from sin and trusted in Jesus, your record of behavior kept in heaven is stamped with righteousness. Always righteous, always a law keeper. Now that's the record of Christ stamped to your account, but that's the wonder of being saved by grace through faith in Jesus. 
you're justified. But further, by his righteousness, you too can be righteous this week. So take heart, the Lord our righteousness rules over our lives, but take heart, the Lord our righteousness can make us righteous this week. You don't have to sin. You don't have to give in to temptation. The overcomer Christ is in us, and we are overcomers. Choose to delight in the law of the Lord, Psalm 1. Choose to yield to the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5. Choose to surrender yourself as a servant to righteousness because you're free to do so, Romans 6. This longing that these books of history create for the perfect king of righteousness will be realized ultimately one day when Jesus comes back. But it can be realized now when we rest in his perfect lordship as the righteous judge and as we allow his righteousness to be manifest in our lives. His righteous people demonstrating his righteousness so that when men see our righteous works, they actually glorify the righteous source of them, our Father in heaven. May this longing for a perfect king and a perfect kingdom be satisfied in our hearts this morning. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.